Romans chapter 8 is verse 18 is where I'd like to begin on this wonderful morning. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we have been talking since last Sunday about the problem of suffering, and I feel like maybe there's a little bit more that we could add to that. This may not be a topic that exactly thrills you or maybe tickles your ear, but it may be something that's necessary for you. It may be a missing piece of the puzzle in your life, something that will help you to move forward in life. You need to know this, that not all suffering is the same. There is a suffering for righteousness, and there is a suffering for unrighteousness. Some people are suffering because they have done something wrong, while others are suffering for doing what is right. Notice this scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. It says, but what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If you do good and you suffer for it and you endure that, this is a gracious, some translations say, thankful thing in the sight of God. So if you are being punished for breaking the law, there's no testimony in that. No one will honor you for getting what you deserve, you see. But if you are suffering unjustly and you patiently endure it, the scripture says that is commendable in the sight of God. That means he he takes note of that and he will bless you. Amen. We live in an unjust world. That's a fact. You might as well just acknowledge it. But God is gracious, and he's the great equalizer, and he can tip the scales in your favor. Can somebody shout amen? Amen. Hallelujah. There are different kinds of suffering. One mistake the church has made is to put all suffering into the same bag, bulletin bag, so to speak, shake it up, mix it up, and pour it out. They, They think it's all the same, but it's not. Jesus suffered on the cross as our substitute. He suffered there in order to relieve our suffering. He also suffered in his life and earthly ministry as our example. There he suffered, leaving us a pattern to emulate, footsteps to follow. So you don't need to suffer with guilt and shame. Because the Bible says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Bore means he, it was laid on him, he took it, he carried it away. Hallelujah. He died to take away our sins. The Bible tells me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it's very startling that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, would say this. He became sin, the personification of sin. He not only suffered for our sins, our sins were poured into him. He became sin with our sin so that we might be righteous with his righteousness. We traded places. Hallelujah. So that we would have right standing with God. So that we would be in a place where there is no condemnation. Where we are in a place of high privilege and favor with God. Glory to God. Amen. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26 that he came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's also interesting. To put away sin. Not only are we forgiven, but he put away sin. Hallelujah. The new life version says he gave himself to destroy sin. He canceled it, removed it, abolished it, and demolished its power 
over our lives. See, we're not just forgiven sinners. We are new creations in Christ Jesus, and now we are dead to sin and alive unto God. Hallelujah. That's true concerning your inner man, and you've got to let your inner man dominate your flesh. Can I get another amen? He demolished sin's power over your life. Glory to God. See, the problem is we preach to Christians as if they're sinners in the church world. And sometimes we preach to sinners as if they're Christians. We hold evangelistic crusade meetings, but it's like a church service. But sinners don't go to church services. Well, some of them do. But, you know, we, 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 we're, we're preach, we should know who we're speaking to. We're speaking to you this morning as those who are in Christ, as those who are born of the Spirit and washed in the blood, as those who have a covenant with the living God, the covenant-keeping God. Am I speaking to anybody here today? I said, are, am I speaking to anybody here today? Glory to God. Amen. You don't need to suffer with sickness and disease because he suffered for your healing. 1 Peter 2.24, which we quoted earlier, goes on to say, By his wounds you have been healed. Amen. By his wounds you have been healed. The Greek word for wounds, or maybe your Bible says stripes, is the word molops, molops. And it means a bruise or a wound that trickles with blood. A wound that trickles with blood. So what he's really referring to is the marks that were left by the scourging Christ received at the hands of the Roman soldiers. He was probably flogged with what is called a cat o' nine tails. What does that mean? Well, it was a leather whip, and at the end of it, there were several uh, strips of leather. At the ends of those strips were attached typically pieces of bone or maybe pieces of sharp metal. And when that whip came across his back and sides, the metal, metal pieces and bone dug into his skin, dug into his flesh, and when the whip was pulled back, it peeled a layer of skin. So that leaves the stripe. That's what he's talking about, you see. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing. Yet here's something rather odd. Strangely, in this verse, the Greek word molops is singular. You would think it would be plural, but it's actually singular, which indicates not just several marks on his body as a result of the scourging, the whipping, but his entire being was one giant bruise. You couldn't distinguish like space between the marks. You see, the Jews had a law which prevented a man from being whipped more than 40 times. So they, they would actually count 39 and then stop. Paul talks about being whipped, you know, uh, 40 lashes, save one or minus one. They counted 39 because just in case somehow they miscounted, they didn't want to go beyond that. See, God put a limit. You can't just degrade someone. You can't just, you can't just, you know, go beyond what is, you know, even humanly reasonable. But Jesus was flogged by the Roman soldiers and they had no law like that. They whipped a person till he was a mass of bloody pulp. It's interesting, many people historically who were scourged by Roman soldiers never survived. Many were maimed for the rest of their life. If they did live, they were impaired, they were handicapped for the rest of their life. It wasn't uncommon for a person to lose a tooth, an eyeball, even for, you know, his, his sinews and, and, and intestines to be exposed by this. It was an absolutely horrible thing. The Bible says in Isaiah 52, verse 14, it's a prophecy. It's a, it's a divine picture of Christ's sufferings. It says, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance. How many times have we seen, like, uh, uh, maybe, like, paintings or statues, that type of thing, of Christ on the cross. And, you know, sometimes it looks like he's just mildly uncomfortable or something. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but, you know, sometimes it just sort of looks like he's just like, you know, like just, the, well, kind of the way some of you look right now, actually. But, you know, just a little bit uncomfortable or something like that. 
But that's, that's not true. That, that's not accurate. Isaiah gives us a clearer picture. When you saw what they had done to him, the people were aghast. They, 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 they were in shock because you couldn't recognize him. He was so marred. In fact, he didn't even look like a human being. And he did that so that you could be healed. By his stripes, you have been healed. Woo! Hallelujah. You know, some, some Christians will tell you, well, you know, healing is not very important. The main thing is that people get saved. If healing is not important, why did Jesus pay such a terrible price so that you could be healed? Amen. I've heard other people say that 1 Peter 2.24 only refers to spiritual healing. They say that's not talking about physical healing. That just means your spirit is healed. That's not true. I said that's not true. The Greek word for healed in 1 Peter 2.24 is iaomai. And it means to be cured of physical illness. The same Greek word is closely related to the word that's translated physician. Other places in the New Testament. Besides that, when you came to Christ, God didn't heal your spirit. That's bad doctrine. When you came to Christ, God did not heal your spirit. He recreated your spirit. He made you a new man, an altogether new person in Christ. You see, when you get healed, healing is a restoration of the body from a diseased condition. If God healed you of a sore throat, he doesn't give you a new throat. That would be more like a creative miracle. He repairs the one you have. But Jesus did not repair your sinful spirit. He made you altogether a new man, a new person in Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So you don't need to suffer with sickness and disease. You can't say, well, you know, this, this diabetes I have, that's just the cross I have to bear. No, it was the cross he bore so that you don't have to bear it. Amen. I didn't say it's a sin to be sick, but you don't have to be sick. You can be free. You can be delivered. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. You don't need to suffer with poverty and lack. Because Christ suffered so that you could be well supplied. Is that really true? Well, if I give you a Bible verse, will that convince you? Some people know, but would it convince a true believer? It should. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter... We are preaching from the Bible this morning. I'm sorry to disappoint you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this. Though he was rich, talking about Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become poor. Rich. I think some Christians think that verse says so that you, through his poverty, might become poor. That's not what he said. The classic, the amplified classic version says that you might be abundantly supplied. Well, that's, that's one definition of the word rich, abundantly supplied. Are, we, are you saying that we'll all be kropatis? Not necessarily, but we'll have all of our needs met, more than enough. Hallelujah. You don't have to live at the bottom of the barrel. Some people just live at scraping the bottom of the barrel. You know what that means? Like their vehicle is always driving around with the needle touching E, E for empty. And all of their finances, if there was a, a gauge, it would all be touching E. But you can live at the top of the barrel. You can live in the overflow. You can live in abundance. You, you can live, you can defeat lack. You can attack your lack by believing the word of God today. I don't know about you, but I think that's good news. I think that's, that, that deserves more than a nod. I think maybe that deserves a hearty amen. I think, that's, I think that's good enough to make even a Presbyterian dance. Hallelujah. Woohoo! 
Some people would say this. Well, aren't we supposed to be like Christ, Brother John? And he was poor. Was he? Yeah. How do you know? Everybody knows that. Well, maybe, maybe that's just your opinion and not really what the Bible says. Jesus healed beggars like blind Bartimaeus, but he did not become a beggar. The Bible doesn't say blind Bartimaeus was walking down the road and passed by Jesus, seated there looking for a handout. <laughs> Peter and John didn't go to the temple at the hour of prayer and saw Jesus there begging at the but called, uh, gate called Beautiful. Are you listening to me? Amen. Twelve grown men. Some of them had families. Followed Jesus. They left all to follow him. And he was responsible for providing for their needs. See, Peter, we know Peter was married. Some people say, no, he was the first pope. He wasn't married. The Bible says that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Please explain to me how you get a mother-in-law without being married. That would really be bad. <laughs> Amen. He provided for them. He provided for them. Furthermore, he created wealth for others. On one occasion, there was a multitude of five, at least 5,000 men. And he supernaturally fed them from a little boy's lunch. Woo. And everybody ate until they were full. Now, if there were 5,000 men in that meeting, there must have been at least 5,000 women. Sorry, ladies. They, in those days, they just counted the men. Well, even now, we should do that. But I'm sorry. And uh, they just counted but the men, but the women were there too. I've never been to a church service that had more men than women. Every church service I've ever been to, there were women there. One time we had a men's meeting, and even some women came to that. <laughs> I could preach another sermon right now. Some pastors, some pastors are kind of anti-woman. That's really dumb. If there were no women, there would be no church, honestly. It was, okay, I, I see you. You're like, <laughs> it was my mother. How many of you could, could, could relate to this? It was my mother that dragged us to church as little children. If it was up to my dad, we would have been heathen. It was my mother. It was my mother that read the Bible to me and prayed with me, you know, before I went to sleep as a child in my bed. And, and I mean, thank God for godly fathers. Don't, don't get me wrong, but to be anti-woman is kind of dumb. Come on, ladies, you know, smile. I, I'm trying to help you out here a little bit. Show a little, show a little appreciation. Amen. Amen. You know, some people think, I don't think that Jeff uh, totally is really a pastor. She's more of a pastor than I am. So therefore, she's definitely more of a pastor than you are. <laughs> she has a heart for this church like nobody else. Amen. Hallelujah. The zeal of God's house has consumed her. I get nervous. I look over there. She's fashioning a whip now and ready to turn, overturn some tables. Amen. Hallelujah. So at Easter... We provided refreshments, nice refreshments, for I think 800 people, 1,000 people, 1,000 people. And uh, it cost us one lakh to do that. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. Some of you think it probably cost like, you know, maybe 300 rupees. I don't know what kind of rock you're living under. It cost us one, and that was, that was not a meal. That was like nice, really, they were super nice refreshments. In fact, the, 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 the dear sister that made that for us, she really didn't charge us the full amount. She, she gave us a lot of bakshi, whatever, you know, a, a lot of extra, you know, you know just, just out of kindness. Can you imagine feeding 15,000, because where there's women, there's children, there are 5,000 men. Imagine feeding 15,000 people. How much of that would cost? And they ate a full meal. They ate until their bellies were bursting. <laughs> I like that. They ate until everybody was full. He's not a, a stingy God. 
If God was Presbyterian, they all would have had just like a little potato chip and a little, you know, a little, little styrofoam cup of water. But no, they ate till their buttons were bursting. You can look at me and tell me, tell that I believe in prosperity. I mean, you know, the Bible says the righteous shall be made fat. How many of you want the Lord to bless you? Here's your future. Some of you skinny people, you need to get right with God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Was Jesus poor? One time a woman brought an expensive ointment that would cost like a year's salary in, in that time. And she poured it on Jesus' feet. She didn't just wrap it up and gift it to him. She poured it on his feet. And some of the disciples complained. And they said, this could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But Jesus said to them, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Stop complaining. He went on to say in John chapter 12, verse 8, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. That is to say, like in the flesh. So notice that. At least Jesus did not consider himself to be poor. Was Jesus poor? Well, he didn't think he was poor. This, this ointment could have been sold and given to the poor. He didn't say, that's me. I'm the poorest boy in this house. He didn't say that. He said, you always have the poor, but you don't always have me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm amazed I could preach three sermons right now. I don't think you could take it, but I could do it. I, I'm amazed how many Christians get angry when they when someone attempts to teach biblical prosperity they just blow a fuse they just lose their minds some of them just in a rage in the middle of a, a lesson or a sermon on prosperity they'll jump up in anger stomp out of the service get in their mercedes and drive off that's a little too deep for some of you sorry in other words, why is it okay for God to prosper you and not someone else? Friend, if you can't be in favor of prosperity, I mean biblical prosperity. I'm not talking about greed and covetousness and tricking things to an extreme. I'm not talking about that. But if you can't believe in, if you can't be in favor of prosperity, can you at least be against poverty? You being poor helps nobody. I said, you being poor helps nobody. If you're a beggar, even the beggar doesn't need you. <laughs> I was in Calcutta years ago, many years ago, like 1989, 1990. And I was in a big old ambassador taxi cab. And we were stopped at a police point, you know, intersection. And this little girl came begging to the window. She tapped on the window, ba-ba. Baba, baba, baba. So I rolled down the window just a crack and I gave her a five rupee coin. And she looked at it and gave it back. <laughs> Even the beggar was not impressed with that. I guess she was saying, evidently, you need this more than I do. <laughs> Hallelujah. When did Christ become poor? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. When did that happen then? On the cross. Say there, he lost everything. So that you could have everything. Hallelujah. You don't have to suffer with calamities and mishaps that result in bodily harm. You see, according to Deuteronomy chapter 28, accidents and calamities and catastrophes are part of the curse of the law. That would be the consequence or the punishment for breaking God's law. But I'm so glad Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us. 
He redeemed us. That means he purchased our freedom. He set us free from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was cursed on the cross so that you could be blessed in this life. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Jesus never had an accident his entire life. He was never the victim of a violent crime all of his days because he was divinely protected. Up until the time when he went to the cross. In Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, we read, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands or in their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You know, we shouldn't even trip over our own shoelace. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. I mean, if I stub my toe, like I get up and stub my toe, I start to think, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to make, make a correction here. I shouldn't, that shouldn't even happen to me. In other words, some people are like accident prone. They're just like a constant accident in progress. Just constantly falling, tripping, slipping, and whatever. There's like a one big slow motion car wreck. This big train wreck. That shouldn't be. Because Psalm 91 is a promise that you can claim. In fact, Psalm 34 verse 20 says this. Psalm 34 verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, that's actually a prophecy concerning Christ. Even on the cross, when they wanted to speed up the process, they broke the bones of the other two who were crucified so they couldn't push themselves up and couldn't breathe. They would suffocate. But when they came to Christ, they didn't do that. Even in his death, what a brutal death, horrible death, still they didn't break his bones. Not a bone was broken. And you are in Christ, and all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. I believe you can stand on that promise. You don't have to have broken bones. I mean, if you have one, God can heal you and God can mend you. Don't misunderstand me. But you don't have to live that way like every, every other year or your children. Every other year, just break a bone, break a bone. No, no, he, he keeps all of his bones. Hallelujah. Amen. So... Since Christ suffered for you on the cross to take away your suffering, you don't have to suffer in those ways. However, there's, there are other kinds of suffering from which you are not redeemed. Namely, primarily, persecution and hardship for the cause of Christ. Now it's going to get dark. No, no, this is, this is still truthful, and this is, this is actually helpful. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, told him to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering for the gospel. The Amplified Bible says this, take your share of suffering. That sounds like there's a, there's a portion of suffering that belongs to you. Like if we had a business and we made a profit and you split it up among the partners and here's your share. There's a share, like we, we have a pie and we cut it into slices. Here's your portion. Here's your share. There's a, there's a share, there's a portion of suffering that belongs to you. You don't have to get excited. I know you're not excited, but it's a truth. I'm, I'm telling you what the Bible says. For the gospel's sake, because you share the word of God, because you preach the gospel of Christ. If you dedicate yourself to live for Christ, to be serious about the things of God, and to work for the Lord, not everybody will appreciate it. How many of you have found that out already? How many of you have family members that try to discourage you from coming to this church? How many of you had, you know, community members try to, try to keep you away from maybe, you know, being filled with the Spirit, speaking in tongues? Ooh, and that, anybody? Hallelujah. Huh? How many have best friends that are no longer really close to you because you got saved 
How many of you, some, maybe some of the Bible school students, how many of you have family that were really opposed to you becoming a Christian? You know, maybe you got water baptized and they, they went ballistic. Huh? Not everybody's going to appreciate it. I mean, start preaching the word of God. Start a church. I'm not telling you to do that, but I mean, you know, if God's called you to do that. And people will criticize you. They'll make up stories about you. They'll mock you. They'll ridicule you. See, my wife tells me, I don't even tell you half of the things I hear about you. See, I told the others, the people in Dimapur know, know more about me than I know about myself. She said, I don't want to discourage you. Oh, it's okay, it doesn't bother me. One thing I can say, there's grace there, and people can say different things, and it doesn't bother me at all. Amen? I kind of feel like you can write whatever you want in a newspaper, just make sure you spell my name correctly. <laughs> Hallelujah. Huh? Some people may even try to harm you. They may try to hurt you physically. And you know what? It's not just the sinners who will do this. <clears throat> Sometimes it's some so-called saints who should be called ain'ts. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Yeah, we don't really have to worry about the devil. We have enough unbelieving believers to do the work for him. <laughs> Hallelujah. What does the Bible say? What Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. You know, he didn't say blessed are you when somebody insults you or when somebody talks about you. He says on account of me. Because of me. Amen. Some people have a persecution complex. You know, somebody says the, the soup is cold and they feel like they're being persecuted. You, you know. But he's not talking about that. On account of me, he said. Amen. So notice Jesus said that when you suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. Come on, some of you are saying, Lord, bless me. Bless me. Well, this, this may be the answer to your prayer. One, one, one definition of the word blessed is empowered to prosper. Another definition is, definition is happy with divine favor. Woo Glory to God. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4 and verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, which means because you're a Christian, because you believe in him, you are blessed. You're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Whew. There is... A manifestation or a demonstration of God's presence that can only be experienced through suffering. I said there's a, there's a kind of manifestation or, or, or a demonstration of his glory that you will only experience through suffering. That is suffering for Christ. The spirit of glory rests on you. Hallelujah. As they stoned Stephen to death. The Bible says his face shone like an angel. Man, he was radiant with the presence of God. The spirit of God was all over him. Amen. It must have been the anointing because while they're throwing rocks at him, he's praying for them. Don't lay this sin to their charge, Lord. Man, how many of you, you know, somebody just gets you funny and, you know, you, you, you're ready to kill them. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. So what, you sh what should you do if you face harassment or discrimination or opposition because of your faith? What, sh what should you do? Should you just bury your head in the blanket and fill a bucket full of tears? Should you just go about, mope about being dejected and forlorn? Everybody's against me and I don't understand. I don't deserve this. No, that's not what you should do. Notice the next verse, Matthew chapter 5, but instead of verse 11, let's go to verse 12. Rejoice. I said, I don't think you heard me. I said, rejoice. Rejoice. 
Rejoice and be glad. I think the King James says be exceedingly glad. That means not just a little glad, really glad. Hallelujah. Rejoice. See, verse 12 goes with verse 11. Blessed are you if people persecute you. And when that happens, rejoice. 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 Hallelujah. Come on, some of you, if something really good happened to you, you would have trouble rejoicing. Somebody could give you a new car and you go, pray the Lord. Come on, you need to be more expressive with your gratitude and praise to God. Hallelujah. In fact, in the, in the, in the Greek language, he literally said, when it says be glad, it literally means jump for joy. Jump for joy. So that means that this is more than just going, hallelujah. This is like ecstatic. A, 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 a wild demonstration of celebration. Like I said, some people would have trouble doing that if somebody gave them a new house or somebody, you know, gave them a whole lot of money. But here he's not talking about something like that. He's talking about when people insult you, when people come against you, when people falsely accuse you of things because you believe in me. Jump for joy. <laughs> Why? Because you're blessed. There's special favor now. And strength and ability that's on you. Hallelujah. And you should be happy because your adversaries have done you a favor. They just increased your heavenly reward. You may, may, maybe you're not super excited about that because it seems like heaven's a long way away, but one day you'll be really glad, really glad. You want to go to heaven, your reward is Jesus paying you back for your faithfulness, paying you back, hallelujah, for your endurance of persecution, for your good works. That's him, that's him rewarding you. Some people will go to heaven and their reward will be a cup of lemonade. But I'm telling you, you, wanna, you don't want to just go to heaven. You want to be rewarded when you get there. You want to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to make you master over many things. That's what you want to hear. Come on. Come on. Hallelujah. Several years ago, several years ago, one young lady in our church, she's not here anymore, but she moved away. But she came to meet me in my office. And her face was black and blue and like her, swollen. Her nose was swollen, that type of thing. And I said, what happened to you? And she was very tearful. And she said that last night she told her father that she wanted to go to Bible school. And he bashed her up. And then she just began to weep and everything. And, you know, naturally I felt, you know, sympathy for her. Don't misunderstand me. But you don't need human sympathy. You need divine intervention. You don't need someone just to join your pity party. That's not really going to help you. You need the power of God. So I read to her this verse, or actually I quoted this verse to her. Rejoice and be glad. For that's how they persecuted the prophets of old. That means, wow, you're in that class now. You've just been bumped up to a new level. You're in a new category right now. Hallelujah. And so I said, we're going to do that. Let's just rejoice. Because God has counted you worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. See, God doesn't think like you think. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. So we began to just praise God there. Swollen nose, black eye and all. Just began to praise God. Praise the Lord. I saw her face light up. I saw, her, I saw just a sense of peace and joy come over here. Hallelujah. That's what you should do too. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Listen, I'll give you just a little bit more. Not much, but just a little bit. Bakshish. A little bit more. Here we go. Some Christians are suffering needlessly. 
It's not necessary for them to suffer in that way because it's not God's will for them, you see? But then there are other Christians who are always attempting to evade the kind of suffering that actually they should embrace because it is God's will. It's part of his plan. Part of God's plan for your life will include suffering. Everybody sit down. Don't, don't shout too loud. I said, part of God's plan for your life includes suffering. Maybe you feel like you're suffering right now listening to this long sermon. I don't know, but part of God's plan includes suffering. Suffering for his name. Suffering for the cause of Christ. Suffering for the advancement of the kingdom. It's baked in. If you think life's going to be one big picnic, ha, ha, ha. I don't know who told you that. But you're going to be sorely disappointed real shortly if you haven't already been. Amen? There's a devil out there who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He's, he's not going to roll over and play dead as you move forward in the plan of God with your life. He's going to try to stop you, and he's going to use people. The Bible says there's a, a scripture verse in the book of Micah. I, I don't remember the chapter in reference, but it says that um, and the members of a man's family will be his own enemies. Jesus quoted it. Mother will be against the daughter-in-law and, and father against their children, etc. Because the enemy will use people to try to discourage you, to say harmful things to you. What do you do? Rejoice. Rejoice. Jump for joy. Hallelujah. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 says this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. So there's a verse you can claim that. No, you don't need to claim it. It's, it's just there. Hallelujah. Now, some Christians who are here today would say, well, Brother John, I'm not really being persecuted. Yeah, because you're not living a godly life. It says, all who desire to live a godly, not ungodly, godly life will be persecuted. We all know why now. It's real quiet in this Holy Ghost church. Amen. You better say amen because your silence makes you look guilty. Amen. When you got saved, the devil put a target on your back. But resist him firm in the faith. Take up the whole armor of God. Some people say things like, some Christians say, well, you know, actually, the devil's not really messing with me. He's not really harassing me. He's not really coming against me. I know. Because you're not worth the gunpowder. You're not doing anything. You're just sitting there like a, a lump of coal. Huh? You're not advancing God's kingdom. You're not actively, aggressively doing his will. You're just kind of a Sunday morning Christian. You're just kind of a Christmas Christian. You just kind of, you know, pay your bills and, you know, and, and have fun and, and occasionally you come to church. Hey, that's fine. The devil will salute you. He might even tell you it's time to go to church. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if you don't do anything, he, he's not going to mess with you. He's not going to be bothered with you. Why? Because you're no threat to him. He don't, that means he doesn't care about you. You're insignificant as far as he's concerned. But when all hell is coming against you and shots are being fired left and right, you must be doing something right. You're in, you're in the game now. You're in it. Hallelujah. I remember years ago, I was playing basketball by myself, you know, at a park in America, just shooting the ball, you know. Those days are gone. And I swallowed the basketball. I can't pass it to you. So I was playing, I, I told you, I used to be, when I was young, like in my 20s, when we got married, I was like a bamboo pole. Now I'm a mighty oak. So I was playing basketball, minding my own business, and these three guys came up and said, hey, we're going to play a game. They're strangers. I don't know them. We're going to play a game, and we, we need a fourth person, so please join us. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just here by myself shooting. They said, no, come on, we need your help. And somehow they, they talked me into it. 
And so we were playing, but I was just kind of like, you know, slow motion, you know. I just kind of stand off the side and just sort of like, you know, just sort of just sort of stand there, wait for them to throw me the ball. And the, guy, the, other, the other people kept saying, come on, get in the game. Come on, man. I thought, man, they're suddenly aggressive. You know, they were so nice er- earlier. Get in the game. Get in the game. Come on. In other words, they're saying like, you're not even trying, bud. You're just, you're just standing there, uh, you know, like, like you're sunbathing with a basketball in your hand. Come on. You're not even pushing yourself. Come on. Who wants to play against somebody who's just like, you know, a telephone pole standing in the corner? I think in the spirit realm, angels are saying the same thing to some of you. Come on. Get in the game. You're just standing around. You're not doing anything. You're just soaking up the blessings. Hear another sermon. I like that one. But I like the one from three weeks ago better. Like you're, now you're a sermon critic in the Sermon Olympics or something like that. You know, God's saying, come on, get in the game. Come on, it's time for you to take what you have learned and use it. It's time to act on the word of God. It's time that you become a voice for Christ. There's a world that's dying and going to hell. And how can you remain criminally silent? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. We began by reading Romans 8 verse 18. I'm almost done now. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever suffering you experience, that's nothing compared to what God has for you. But actually in this verse, I don't think Paul is especially talking about just all suffering, just suffering in general. Because go back and read the previous verse, verse 17, Romans 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs. If we are are children of God, then we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Notice this. We usually stop reading there. I'm an heir of God, joint heir with Christ. But notice he said this, provided. There's a provision here. There's a requirement here. Provided we suffer with him in order to be in order that we may be glorified with him. See, we never read that part. Whenever we see the word suffering, we just kind of close our eyes, turn the page, move on. Those words are like somehow magically disappear from our Bible, but they're there. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. But Jesus has already been glorified. He has already arisen from the dead and given a resurrected body. He's not going to be glorified. He's already, that's already happened. You see, I believe what Paul means is this. If we suffer as he suffered, then we will be glorified as he was glorified. Listen, Jesus didn't suffer with sickness. So that's not suffering with him. He didn't go there. He didn't suffer with uh, depression or anxiety or fear. So that's not suffering with him because he never went there. He didn't suffer with extreme poverty and lack and bone-crushing destitution of finances. He didn't go there. He's not asking you to go there either. But he did suffer hardship. Not everybody liked him. He came unto his own and his own received him not. His own family didn't believe in him. The people who should have welcomed him rejected him. You see, he suffered persecution. And that's primarily the kind of suffering you and I may experience. And if we do, you have to endure it. Don't fall away. Don't compromise the truth just because you face some opposition. The man who wrote this letter was in and out of jail his whole Christian life. Some of the letters that you read, he wrote from a damp, dark, gloomy jail cell. Like the book of Philippians. He wrote it from prison. And yet it's that book with four little chapters says over and over again, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. He's happier in jail than than you are sitting on that blue chair. 
He was, he had, he was more, he was, he celebrated more in prison than you do in this, in your sitting room. He said, they may put me in jail, but they can never bind the word of God. Hallelujah. I may be in prison, but I'm a free man. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let me read to you two more scriptures. I'll let you go today. I've gone over time. I apologize for that. Second Corinthians 12, nine says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. I will boast of my weaknesses. The Greek word for weakness doesn't necessarily mean sickness. In fact, in this context, it most definitely does not mean sickness. It means lack of strength, inability, the bodily frail, frailty that you experience through such hardships, rigor, difficult times, difficult places, traveling under, under, under austere conditions, etc. See, we don't boast in our sicknesses. There's nobody else in the New Testament that boasted in their sickness. He's talking about my inability. My inability accentuates God's ability. I'm going to rejoice so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Hallelujah. Then in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness or inability, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I face opposition, when it seems like my own strength is failing, and I'm not up to the job, and I feel alone, and, I, and there are times when it feels like nobody loves me, and, and I've been abandoned by family and friends, and, and when it feels like nothing I'm doing is working, but I stay true to God's will and his plan for my life. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Some Christians are praying, Lord, I'm in a, I'm a difficult place. None of my family members are believers. Or, or Lord, uh, where I work, they, they, they make fun of me. They exclude me because I'm a Christian. Lord, give me another job with Christians. No. No, he's got you there to shine as a bright light. You don't pray for an easy life. Pray for strength. He said, my grace is enough for you. Hallelujah. So when I'm weak in my, in my own inabilities, his grace is available for me. Hallelujah. Apostle Paul said, we were like men left to die. But that only caused us to trust in God who raises the dead. Hallelujah. I said, hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Passion Translation, it's not on the screen, they don't have it. But the Passion Translation says, my weakness becomes a portal to God's power. Suffering is the doorway to glory. I said, suffering is the doorway to glory and greater grace. When you endure for the sake of Christ, when you go through hard times because you're glorifying the name of Jesus and you're preaching his word and you're serving him with all your heart, there's grace available, there's strength available, there's power available. Then you live in the supernatural realm. Can we stand together to our feet?